Amy Allen. Reed Hastings, how are you? Surviving. Oh, it's good to hear your voice. <laughs> Michael Moe is sitting across from me in DC. I'm so excited. Hi, Reed. Hey, Michael. Great to hear your voice. Yeah, no, great to hear your voice. Education. I'm Jeannie Allen. I'm Michael Moe. In Piazza is a new place dedicated to issues that are central to life. The Piazza was the main place of commerce, the marketplace of ideas, and the place where people simply came to converse. And that's why we're here today, to gather to offer a new center, a place where, when you've had enough of all the typical politics and issues and conflict, you can actually become part of a conversation that means something to your life. We'll engage thoughtful people about issues and ideas that are most important to advancing human potential, how we educate kids, acquire knowledge ourselves, get better at work, and build a strong communities that make a great nation. So join us in Piazza every week, starting today. Speaking of thoughtful, we have an incredible inaugural guest, Mr. Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, an activist for social causes, including our favorite, Education Excellence. In La Piazza. So Reed, it's so great to uh, be with you. Um, and you know, obviously, Reed Hastings, the founder and CEO of Netflix, uh, doing amazingly well, you know, $250 billion market value, but we're not here to talk about Netflix today. We're here to talk about another huge passion of yours, which is education and long involvement in terms of a education innovator and education reformer, and you just keep on going. So just this week, um, you, you made the announcement of the partnership with Robert Morris University, and I'd like you to talk about that, but before you do, you should know that uh, Chris Howard is an old friend of mine. In fact, he, you know, Bill Campbell, our friend from Silicon Valley, who passed away a few years ago, uh, Chris was the original uh, winner of the Bill Campbell Award and for the top uh, football player and leader and academic. So anyway, it's, it, was, it, was, it was very cool to see that announcement. So maybe, maybe we can kick off, talk about it. I'm not surprised that Chris Howard won that award. Chris Howard is the president of Robert Morris University, um, just an amazing uh, leader and individual. Um, and so um, supporting uh, 20 full-time students, uh, full scholarships a year um, for the next couple of years. And that's something that Chris and I have been talking about for a while of what he thinks um, he can do when students graduate, you know, without debt. Um, and there's so much opportunity there uh, not to have that debt burden. So he's very passionate on this and I'm happy to support it. So fantastic, and it also reminds me of what you did last year with HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, Reed, um, through UNCF. I'm a big fan of UNCF, United Negro College Fund, run by Dr. Michael Lomax. Clearly you are too, because you gave $120 million for scholarships for Morehouse and Spelman and to UNCF. And, and I want to know what made you do that, and did it have anything to do also, or would it have been any kind of litmus test for you as a progressive Democrat we've known for a long time. You were an early supporter of charter schools. UNCF is incredibly dedicated to the concept of education opportunity in any way, shape, or form. 
and here you are weighing in on their work as well. What, what led you and Patty to do that? Well, it's been close to 30 years um, that I've been working on uh, charter schools and providing more opportunity for kids' education. And over the last 30 years, uh, the charter school movements continued uh, to develop, to mature, um, to have really incredible results. And I would say broadly, um, I'm interested in things that provide kids more opportunity. Um, and some of that now that Netflix has done so well and the, frankly the scale of my donations have increased uh, that we're doing more now at the college level also. Um, and then I've been you know, a donor to UNCF for a long time and um, to Morehouse and Spelman for a couple of years. And then this gift last summer was a big one of sort of investment post George Floyd of you know the path ahead is the path of reducing income inequality, racial inequality. Um, so then the path to that is really education. And do you see any of those investments helping kind of push system change? You and I have talked about that before. You know, that's what charters uh, were intended to do and have done in large part, kind of push traditional blobby, if you will, systems to change. You know, how do we, how do, we do that kind of K through career? different you know we're such a distributed education system all our different universities all the different school districts that we're you know taking different approaches in different cities and um, Washington DC you know about half the kids are in uh, charter public schools and the great thing is it's not only are they doing a good job but the district is also doing a better job than it did 20 years ago so it's really uh, the growth of charters really helps rise all boats and give all kids an opportunity. And we've seen that, uh, again, in Newark and Oakland and San Francisco in um, Los Angeles. Um, so that's a really a multi-story city. Yeah. So, you know, and again, we're not going to talk about Netflix, but but one of the things that you talk about, um, that one of the, the most, uh, I guess, the biggest, out of the biggest mistake you, that you said you had in your career kind of became part of a culture of this farming for dissent. And, and you know, as I look at some of the things that, you know, I think so many of us agree on, you know, the need for change, but 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 how you are able to have the right voice without um, being penalized for having things that, that that might be difficult to talk about, but we need to get to kind of the solution. So how do you think that kind of concept of farming for dissent can be applied to some of the issues that we're dealing with in, in education today? We'll take the charter movement. Um, you know, way too many people in the charter movement are anti-union. And they think the union is the root of the problem. But if you look across the country, um, the states that have strong unions, New Jersey, Massachusetts, they do incredibly well on education for kids. And the states that have really weak unions, uh, Mississippi, Arkansas, they don't do as well. So if anything, the data is significantly tipped in favor of unions. But from a charter perspective, most people are just, not most maybe, but too many are, are anti-union and if you look at southwest airlines they're incredibly innovative and been the best airline you know for the last 30 years and they're unionized top to bottom so we got to get over this thing that the union is the problem the problem is a lack of opportunity and innovation and that's where these nonprofit charter schools really help because they have a sense of mission and purpose 
And we've seen this other big trend, which is fantastic, which is tech in education. And that's starting to make a real difference, both in school district uh, and in charter public schools. Yeah, basically we had 1.6 billion students thrown in the deep end of the online learning pool uh, nine months ago, 10 months ago, and told them to sink or swim. And uh, I think from that necessity, the innovation in the digital learning space has just exploded. You were early in the, in the rocket ship uh, charter program, which obviously was an early adopter of technology and into the school. What is encouraging to you in terms of technology, ed, ed tech and things that are being done in schools that are really showing, um, you know, showing a big impact? You know, I think um, each school should be able to pick what they uh, want to use and, you know, it should be a broad uh, market. I'm not endorsing any particular approach. Um, generally, we want to get, you know, the internet um, to be an active part of students' learning so that they can be learning in the classroom and learning outside the classroom as we've been forced to do in this pandemic. Um, so I'm, I'm very encouraged. And if you look at how uh, technology has transformed other sectors of our economy, um, you know, I'm sure it's going to also have a, a big positive impact in education. You know, for people listening right now, uh, we're in Piazza with our inaugural guest, Reed Hastings, Michael Moe, and myself. And Reed, in the Piazza of old, uh, Town Square, that was originally conceived of to have discussions about how you'd organize the community, um, to come together for uh, ideas relating to politics, government. So let's go back to the Piazza of old. Uh, what would you say if I responded to you uh, about the challenges we're having as not a matter of pro-union or anti-union, but whatever organization out there is standing in the way of kids, we have to do something different. So today, there's this huge tension about reopening schools. I mean, there has been for years, but every day there's a new study out, CDC, um, the vaccinations are increasing, and every day there's a group of people who are moving the goal line for when our kids can return. And, and our new president, Biden, is kind of torn. He said he'd open, reopen the schools, and you, know, you and I and all of us know that just reopening the schools doesn't solve the problem of education. But what would you say if, if you are sitting here and watching um, the tension between there are unions stopping and standing at the schoolhouse door, uh, keeping schools closed? Meanwhile, there are lots of thoughtful adults, including our president, who want to open them. Yeah, it is a big tension. Uh, clearly, kids do better um, when they're in schools, and parents need that. Um, and teachers, you know, want to teach. Uh, but there's real concerns about their safety, depending on, you know, the conditions. So that is a, a hard tension, and it probably varies a lot by state um, and district in terms of, you know, the relative uh, levels of COVID. So, um, you know, we're lots of schools, including, you know, uh, I'll take an example. I'm on the board of KIPP Charter Schools, um, and uh, most uh, KIPP schools are not open at this point. Um, for those same reasons, the teachers' concerns on, you know, can we uh, keep them uh, healthy and and they're not yet vaccinated. But hopefully pretty soon um, we'll have, uh, you know, next two or three months we'll have the teachers all vaccinated and that's going to change the game. Yeah, uh, it, it, and, and one of the things you just said, 
is really critical. KIPP made a choice to, to keep, stay closed. We also know that their programs are super robust. There's a notion floating around, and it's coming out of the Freedom Coalition for Charter Schools. It's coming out of a group called the National Parents Union, founded by Kerry Rodriguez. And that is that perhaps we need to be driving funds to families that don't have the option of going to a KIPP where it's a really robust program of learning online, or Eva Moskowitz and Success is doing the same thing. Look, Bridgeport, Connecticut, traditional districts, many of them like that are also doing great things. What do you think of this notion of maybe starting to think about new ways to fund families? When you talk about innovation, it's almost like there's no, there's no need for um, rooms and walls anymore. Yeah, I think there are needs for rooms and walls. Um, you know, what kids learn is, you know, behavior and socialization and connection. Um, so personally, I'm not a fan of, like, everyone becomes a homeschooler and they take care of education, you know, on, on their own, figuring out little groups. I think the uh, kind of institutional roots of, um, you know, having uh, 300 to 800 kids on a campus is, is powerful in terms of the adults that they interact with and see as role models. Um, so, you know, obviously all of that's post-pandemic. Um, so I guess I wouldn't be a fan particularly of uprooting, you know, the system in the, during this pandemic since it's almost fingers crossed over. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that we won't do a bunch of learning from home, but, you know, most families are dual working parents and, you know, frankly, they. They need the kids uh, engaged at school. Yeah. So talk about your perspective. You know, we're in a knowledge-based economy. You're the CEO of a Silicon Valley-based technology slash entertainment company. What is the skills of the future? What do you think we should be doing to, to prepare students to really participate in the future and be part of this knowledge-based economy? I think, you know, in general, we all have a, a same set of goals, which is kids that are really thinking and curious um, and um, know how to use kind of computers to extend their skills, to research things, to be able to figure things out. You know, there's fewer and fewer industrial manufacturing type jobs, and even those are getting more high tech. So it's this sort of project-oriented skills of being able to Again, uh, research something really rapidly, understand. It's kind of the ongoing learning. But there's nothing new in that. We've been, as a community, I think, talking about the importance of that for 20 or 30 years. And the, the big tension right now, I would say, is really around the testing um, movement. So, you know, um, statewide and national testing um, started, you know, out of Texas in the 1990s and gained great currency and has really driven a lot of improvement in through No Child Left Behind. Um, and now there's this incredible backlash against testing, including for college admissions for, you know, um, the UC system, University of California, um, you know, has walked away from SETs and ACTs um, and relied purely on grades. And it just feels like a big overcorrection. Because what's going to happen is just massive grade inflation. Yeah, and that's also jumping on um, sort of the trend in the SATs. Uh, some people would say watering down. I've said that. Some people would just say trying to make it more accessible. 
but are we making it better for kids if we're lowering the bar um, to the expectation of knowledge? It may not be the best thing to get you into college. We all know that. But uh, how do you make sure that those students who, for example, you're supporting Reed at Robert Morris, the HBCUs and others are supporting, um, have, have expectations set? And, and how do you hold kids accountable if they don't feel like there's an end goal? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you on did we need great tests. We need to invest more in tests so that the tests are more accurate and not um, trivial. Um, and, and I don't think SAT is lowering the bar in any way because they're very concerned about stability, you know, that uh, a certain, you know, a 700 means a 700 generation mm -hmm. to generation, and they're, they're very good at it. Um, so I don't think that's happening. But I think there's just, a, you know, a wholesale revolt against testing and, you know, bigger in many ways than the backlash against uh, charter public school. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we ought to really figure out how are we going to assess kids because as you all will remember, you know, prior to the testing moment, we were having lots of kids graduate high school who couldn't read. Mm -hmm. right? And, but, you know, they were, they, they were just pushed ahead. And without the testing, you know, starting in third grade, you know, as the kids fall, the, the point of the test is not to really assess the student, although it does do that. It's to make sure that the student gets you know, the remedial work so that they can succeed, you know, by eighth grade and 12th grade. So, um, you know, that's a really important role of uh, testing. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's obviously fading politically. So you've been uh, an active participant in this uh, education innovation world for 30 plus years. What, what has gone better or as good as you'd hoped and what hasn't gone as well and if, you, and if there's any specific things that you thought could be prioritized today to, to reach uh, bigger objectives, what would those be? Well, the things that don't work are these, you know, uh, big top-down reforms to school districts, class size, uh, you know, mandates, or, you know, you've got to use this or that, um, you know, and then it, it lasts for a couple of years and then goes away. Um, or things like let's, you know, test the teachers. Like, you know, that whole movement of test the teachers just seems to me um, to, have, you know, huge, be ridiculous in the first place and then backfire and trigger a lot of the backlash against Common Core, which I think Common Core was really important. So I would say in the things that um, have under-delivered but are, are really good, I would put Common Core. Um, and uh, the various testing frameworks around that on the things that have under-delivered it's sort of simplistic uh, ideas about holding teachers and schools accountable. Um, there's this huge desire to hold them accountable. But again, what you really want to do is help their capacity, you know, to, to succeed and to do more. Um, so that's been a, you know, a tough dynamic. Charter schools have grown, you know, steadily over 30 years. Um, I wish they were growing faster. And, you know, it turns out that buildings is a big constraint on kind of who's got the building. Um, uh, so, you know, we're continuing to, to work on that. But in, you know, many cities seeing very promising results. We went through a, a couple of those. Um, so um, very good on that one. And then, you know, testing has been a big positive one. Uh, and, you know, except for this backlash in the last really, you know, three or four years. And I think part of the backlash 
uh, goes back to, frankly, some of the same people who have a backlash against testing are people opposed to Common Core. I was never a fan of, in fact, I used to say I was Switzerland to Common Core. Okay, great, use it, don't, uh, you know, incentivize it, don't. The reality is there are teachers, like my daughter-in-law, who use Common Core in their teaching, but they use pieces of it, right? I think the issue was the mandate and the notion that we have such ineffective systems who are going to, from the top down, say, do this, use that. And so one of the, you know, the examples that many of us heard was, you know, saying that there had to be more nonfiction was part of Common Core in your literature, and then teachers not knowing what to use and kind of pulling stuff out the paper that day. And so that's not the way to do it either. Um, but it's giving, as you said, that more control to the educators and to the local institutions, which is, you know, one of the reasons you support charters. So with all that out there, Reed, when you think of the size of these school districts, San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, should we be doing something about the size of districts, too? I mean, can, is this tenable if we want success? Well, that's uh, appealing, you know, let's break up the big school districts and make them smaller and more responsive. Um, but when you look at the data, um, there's no um, correlation between the size of the school district and the results. There are some terrible small school districts and there's some pretty good big districts. So um, I think you'd find you'd be, you know, going to this huge uh, battles to break up districts and that the prize isn't very large and doesn't really have to do with district size. Um, so there's, I haven't found any easy fixes like that uh, that I got convinced would really make a difference. I, I've heard you talk in the past, and I think it, it made me just think completely different about um, how change can happen, systemic change over time, about the governance issues and, and some of the, the structural governance issues of getting change to happen on a ongoing basis with schools. I mean, how do you view that, and are there any fixes that you see there? You know, it is hard. We're the only nation in the world that has these local school boards, um, and we're very proud of them. Um, we see them as a great American innovation. But the challenge for a superintendent who's running a school district is the school board changes so constantly because of the voters, you know, electing new people that the, in large districts, the average superintendent only lasts three years. And it's just very hard to improve a, a large system if there's a new superintendent every three years. So that is a, a core problem, and it, it's what helps. The charter schools are nonprofits, and they have much more stable governance. So they, are, they don't change as rapidly, and they're able to develop a real excellence. So that's the, the core of the, the positive attribute in charter schools. You know, Michael mentioned dissent before to you, Reed, and the policy that you have at Netflix in terms of having sort of an open door and wanting to be um, told when things maybe they did, people didn't think things were going well. As we kind of start closing down, you know, you are, and we ask you this because you are someone who has followed the public debate has participated in public affairs and all sorts of issues at all sorts of levels, who is never afraid in a civil and frankly lovely way to disagree. And we are all so upset that we are living at a time when it feels like we can't even disagree without being attacked. Um, and so, you know, 
we go where our comfort zone is, Michael and I, we go to, well, let's think about how we can use education to drive a better understanding and appreciation of, of civic life. Any thoughts for us on how we all go forward uh, from your vantage point um, as an entrepreneur, as a dad, as someone who's been involved for a long time? Well, our society is um, struggling with two big innovations. One is cable news networks um, and talk radio, sort of specialized media, which um, gives people what they want in their viewing choice, but it reinforces their viewpoint, uh, whether that's uh, left or right. Uh, and then on top of that is social media, which has done that in spades. Um, so these um, pushes on us are, are quite hard, and our society hasn't yet figured out um, how to deal with that. Now, I'm confident we will. There'll be a series of kind of corrections and things so that we can get back to, you know, a more thoughtful, more curious discourse. Um, yeah, but we're definitely going through that with that wave of polarization at this point. I saw a great show on Netflix, Social Dilemma, which was eye-opening. Just to, you kind of knew this was going on, but it was really quite uh, stunning. Um, so, and I think a lot of people had that same reaction. That's a, that's a great tie-in to a, a Netflix show, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we've got quite a quite a wide variety of, of shows. Um, and so that um, ability to disagree and not, um, you know, and try to see what's the other person's perspective is something that we can build more of in education. Um, you know, that curiosity, um, as opposed to that, um, you know, shouting people down, which, you know, is, is so prevalent today. Okay, so right in your backyard in San Francisco, they just released an announcement that they're changing the names of some huge number of schools, but it's not just George Washington, it's Abraham Lincoln, it's Dianne Feinstein. Um, that's kind of crazy. Does that have anything to do with dissent, or is that just, are we, is that one of those overcorrections you're talking about? What do we do about that? Well, when you say it's crazy, you, you mean you don't agree with that, right? You, um, <laughs> so, but the elected school board there, you know, apparently wants, I, I haven't heard of this that particular case, but I'm not, I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's the New York um, Times this morning, so just, just, just hit the I news. See. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, again, that's democracy is that their school board is reacting. Um, the elected school board, you know, is reacting to what they think is right. And you or I may disagree. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but so, I'm, you know, I'm not sure it's an excess or an overage. But again, you know, we've got a lot of these mechanisms in democracy of reacting to how the public feel. And some of them, you know, are really important in terms of absorbing discontent or waves of change. And then some you want to maintain some stability. And, you know, if you think of the last four months, you know, the, the, the framers of the U.S. government and constitution and separating the different branches, I mean, it's really incredible that they came up with all of that, you know, in the mid-1700s. Um, because, boy, you see how, how important those checks and balances are in preserving our democracy. So just as, we're, as, we're, as we are closing, I just have to ask you, you're a legendary, amazing entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs fix things, right? And, and, and you've been focused in this education world for, you know, for a very long time. If you were an entrepreneur today trying to address a problem that could be solved, 
would make a big impact, what would that be? Well, if you're a social entrepreneur, so nonprofit side, um, then I would build a charter school network that's better than KIPP and better than success and better than all the others. Build on something on what they've done and, you know, do, deliver incredible results for kids. If you're on the for-profit side, then I would probably do ed tech and try to do amazing global learning solutions uh, that you can sell to people all around the world. Those are some really big opportunities. There are enormous opportunities there. Um, you're absolutely right, Reed. And I think one of the challenges always is to help people understand that those two things that you've just named, whether you're a social entrepreneur or you're in the um, tax-paying uh, company sector, ed tech sector, are available to everyone. Um, and, you know, Michael Moe is always fond of saying that uh, everyone should have access to the future. Um, what is your final thought about how do we publicize that anybody can, not anyone unqualified, but anyone has the ability to or the access to do things like that that have a serious impact? Um, as a media company, as a media entrepreneur, tell us how we help promote access to the future for everybody. Kip has a great phrase, the actual proves the possible. And so it's featuring uh, entrepreneurs uh, like Jesse Willie Wilson uh, runs Dreambox Learning um, that uh, has had an amazing career and now is this um, great entrepreneur. So again, it's, it's featuring um, the big successes that will help. You've been so generous with your time today, Reed. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about uh, all of these issues. I hope that um, lots of people take your words as a model because uh, everybody should uh, think as broadly and as big as you. I wish in Piazza came with an espresso. I look forward to collecting that later. And uh, my best to both of you and good wishes. Bye-bye. Thank you, Reed. So that was Reed Hastings we were talking to, Michael. Um, and uh, what did you think of his, what did you think of his discussion? What did you think of his responses? Well, he's just, a, you know, such a thoughtful person. I mean, he just is a big thinker. He's a thoughtful person. He's a great person at connecting dots. And so while there could be some dissent uh, of what his conclusion might be, you know, or different ways to skin the cat, maybe, um, you just have to admire his his uh, thoughtfulness and just the strategic way that he goes about uh, you know, solving problems. He is really an optimist, isn't he? He, uh, you know, with his, the question about which uh, lots of people out there are probably going, wow, why don't you go after him? The question about unions. Um, he's, he's thought that way for a long time. He said, you know, that's not necessarily our, our biggest issue. Our, our biggest issue really is on just getting kids in front of great educational venues. Yeah, what I've heard him talk about is how the union is a symptom, not that's not the the, pro the problem. And I think we get waste a lot of energy, you know, getting upset about the symptom as opposed to, you know, what can be done actually to 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 make change happen. And I appreciate the impediments and so forth. And if you have this, um, you know, big symptom, you have a big big uh, uh, scar that you need to fix. You know that 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 that's um, you know that's important. We should do it again. And, and the other thing that I think Reed Hastings represents is he really is interested in having dialogue with many different people 
in different, with different points of view. Yeah, and I think that's one of the upsetting things that's, that's going on today, which is so much of the debate is one-sided because if you, uh, if you have a different opinion, you know, getting canceled or, or getting viewed as a, uh, something that uh, is horrible, you know, just as it makes it, you know, too, too, the stakes are too uh, costly to, to, to do that, and that's, that's unfortunate. But I think Reed is, is wonderful of really wanting to listen to all the views and have his own, and as you say, he does it in a delightful way. could be different than your view. But he, but he, you know, he likes to have discussion, but not be, you know, a jerk when he does it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it feels kind of unique out there these days, but maybe it's not. Maybe we're, some of us are just um, too close to too close to the action sometimes to realize that there's probably more people who have that kind of openness and genuine interest in dialoguing um, out there. Well, I do think this cancel culture is a really impediment to change occurring and I think it's the sensitivity that people have about being canceled for saying something that could be disagreeable or you said something you misspoke in a way is so extreme and it's so unhealthy that that I think that that, that pendulum needs to swing back. So why don't we talk just for a minute for our listeners this is our inaugural podcast in Piazza at the Piazza. What do you think um, we should do for the next several years on in Piazza, Michael? What, what should people expect? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think this North Star of giving everybody an equal opportunity to participate in the future, you know, that covers a broad range of, of issues, but the foundation of it goes back to a core passion of ours, which is education innovation. And so uh, we, we need to be um, discussing and you know what are the innovative ideas what are the, the innovative technology what are, who are the innovative people that are making change happen to give everybody an equal opportunity to participate in the future I like to say that old McDonald had a farm EIEIO well new McDonald has a startup EIEIO and what that's all about is entrepreneurship innovation education impact and creating equal opportunity and I think that's what in the in the piazza is going to be be um, about for me. And the great thing about having a dialogue around a virtual town square uh, that addresses and talks about innovation and opportunity is we can talk about any number of areas. And and one of the things for our listeners that Michael Moe and I have connected on is this issue of just of knowledge. Knowledge doesn't just happen in a classroom. Um, it doesn't just happen when you're going to school online. Um, it happens in the workplace. It happens in your home. It happens when you read that great book or you watch that great Netflix flick. Yeah. Um, and talking about what we're learning and what we're learning about is, I think, something that we need to bring back. For sure. And it, I like to say it's about knowledge, not college. And I also think you see this continuum of how people acquire knowledge. Some of it's experience. I mean, that's why travel, you know, it would be great to be able to get back to traveling because you can learn so much from seeing different places and meeting different people. But it is this, what, this news to knowledge continuum of everything from the article that you read this morning to the blog post, to the documentary, to you know, acquiring knowledge and skills of playing games, and then formal education and everything in between. But in this knowledge economy where what you know makes a difference for not only an individual, but for a company, and for that matter, a country. It's gonna be crucial that we are uh, learning on an ongoing basis, nonstop learning. 
and learning how to talk about it with other people. So I'll tell you that we are, my husband and I, newcomers to The Crown. Everyone's talking about it, right? Since we're coming right off an interview with the founder of Netflix, which is super exciting for both of us, even though we've known him for a long time, it's just still super exciting. And everyone kept saying, watch The Crown, watch The Crown. So we're watching The Crown. I just want to get up in the morning and talk to people and look this up and be like, was Winston Churchill really like that? And what is Elizabeth thinking? And tell me more about Philip. And it is so exciting to be uh, sort of exposed to another look at a slice of history. And yet, then I wake up to the paper and we're reading this junk. Yes, it's a disagreement. And yes, it's wonderful, as Reed said, that we, we at least have democratic institutions where we can have these discussions, but that we would take a president's name off of a school because we think that's somehow going to help people. I'd rather be talking about how we got to this point, what we do about making our country better for everybody. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a learning opportunity as, as opposed to, to erase it from history, right? And that's just, um, it, it really strikes me as, as, as being um, uh, bad. But you know, you talk about this. I, I want to talk to, to to read about this theme that we have called Hollywood meets Harvard, and that is this idea you talk about the Crown, which is sensational, right? How engaging! Think think about your learning about history and the history of the monarchy, and you know, you know, really kind of from Queen Elizabeth to today. Um, you know, you, you could read that in a book, but all of a sudden you're just totally engrossed. You're looking things up, and, and it's just, you know, it's a, it's a great way to. To, to, to retain knowledge and, and storytelling is so powerful. So I, I like to do the quiz, you know, what was, how long was the Gilligan Island tour? <laughs> and, and people remember because it was, you know, it was the, the three-hour tour, right? <laughs> yeah, but, but, but how do we do, you know, if it's, it's tough to learn if you're not engaged. It is tough to learn if you're not engaged. Well, and that is the point of our new podcast in Piazza, right? Yeah, that's the point. wherever you get your podcast is a special project of the Center for Education Reform and GSV. Thanks for listening to In Piazza. Ci vediamo, or as we say in English, we'll see you soon. I'm Jeannie Allen. I'm Michael Moe. Ciao. In la piazza.